You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is March 2nd, 2023, 7.35 p.m. Pacific Time. And I thought we would continue talking about attachment repair. We talked a little bit about relationships and how different attachment conditionings create different uh, conditions for relationships. One of the aspects of uh, this is these three capacities or three, I don't know, maybe domains is a good, good name for it. You have the attachment system, the ex- the exploration system, and the collaborative system. In secure functioning relationships, those tend to be well integrated. The attachment system goes off. You seek proximity to the people that are close to you that you rely on to keep you safe. When the attachment system settles, the exploration system turns on and they're there and supporting you to uh, play, to explore and things uh, that lead you to find meaning in your life. And the collaboration system is developed so that you support each other in the relationships in a way that is useful to each person in the relationship. So you take care of them in the way that they need to be taken care of. They take care of you in the way that you need to be taken care of. And the reason that they know how to take care of you in a way that's useful to you is because you've explained to them what that is. And the reason that you know how to take care of them in a way that's useful to them is that they've explained to you how to do it. And then you take on the responsibility. You take care of the other person. They take care of you without having to be prompted or asked to do it because you've made this agreement to do it. So the collaboration system is on most of the time. If you develop the capacity to collaborate, and if you don't develop the capacity to collaborate, it's not online. So that's the thing about this. Where does that happen? So we're all born, we all come into the world as autoregulators. And then if somebody comes well enough, we shift into this external focus where we get regulated from people outside of ourselves. And if somebody comes predictably enough in a good enough way, then we move into this process of learning to collaborate. We as the infant express ourselves in an authentic way. And then our caregivers understand from that expression what it is that we need, and then they offer it to us. And then we as infants begin to learn that if I express myself in this way, I'm likely to get this kind of care, so it becomes predictive. I do this, I cry out, I I wave my arms, I have this facial expression, and that's interpreted by my caregiver as meaning something, and then I'm provided with uh, a response that's meaningful to me. In the secure system, of course, 
you're just being authentic because that works to get you the things that you need. But it, but if somebody doesn't come reliably enough, you don't move from either external regulating or auto regulating into that collaborative system. So you don't really get the instruction that you would need to be able to do it. So one of the things that we use a meditation practice for is to begin to develop those capacities to be able to do that. One of the capacities is mentalizing. You're able to mentalize fast enough to be able to see all of these things happening so that you, you can be responsive in a way that's skillful and useful to getting your needs met and not reactive in a way, a kind of blindness that comes up. Mentalizing means that you can track what's happening for you. You can uh, uh, track the expression that you make in response to that. You can track people's response to you and what you've expressed. And then you can uh, track your response to their reaction. All of that in real time, uh, fast enough so that you then have the capacity to formulate a response to that and uh, um, express it and then continuing this process. So what is your wish in the expression that you make? How do you express it? What's the reaction of the other person to your expression? And then how do you react to uh, the expression that they make in response to your expression? Adult relationships can often um, come into conflict and that, that conflict needs to be resolved. So it also includes a kind of intense emotion that needs to uh, be regulated. So we learn how to regulate our emotions in an intense way, we get good at that, and also understand that if we get so dysregulated that we can't regulate ourselves, that we have people that are reliable that we can turn to to help us regulate. But the thing that I really wanted to talk about today uh, was exploration, and what that means. So we have the basic functions of life where we take care of the body. Most of us are householders. And so how we do that is we, we go out into the world and uh, gather resources, time, energy, and resources. We maintain households. That household includes uh, food and shelter and clothing and medicine. But that basic uh, survival level is not going to produce a sense of meaningfulness that gets you out of the bed and sends you off to explore things. That, that interest comes from the activity of the exploration. We often talk about this in primary exploration and secondary exploration. In primary exploration, it's the experience, the doing of the thing itself that provides the meaning. And in secondary exploration, we uh, gather the time, energy, and resources so that we have them available to pursue our primary exploration. What is it that when you engage in the activity, you find meaningful, that is interesting, that you uh, are uh, curious about pursuing 
finding more about. In secure functioning relationships, then part of the thing of the meaning making is also sharing that with other people so that you surround yourself with people who are interested in what you're pursuing, want to hear about it. Uh, and then you go out and find out the things that you need to know and come back and share them with the other person. And there's a sense of delight that unfolds in the exchange of that information. So part of this is a sense of safety in the relationship with the other person. Part of it is being able to attune to them, to allow this authentic expression to happen. Part of it is the capacity to regulate each other. The greater the capacity that you have to regulate yourself and somebody else, the greater risk they can take in terms of getting themselves dysregulated and finding out what they need to know. If you have a limited capacity to regulate yourself and somebody else and they get dysregulated by their exploration uh, and they come back to you seeking help and re-regulating, that dysregulates you either consciously or unconsciously, we begin to try to restrict their exploration so that we don't have the situation where we become dysregulated by them. But uh, in the reverse, if you have a great capacity to regulate yourself and then resources to regulate someone else, they can really go further out to the edges of what they need to know because they know that they have that backstop of you being able to help them if they need it. But one of the currencies of this is the sense of delight that we have. We delight in the other person, in the beingness, in the way that they are, and they delight in us in the same way. And we're delighted to support them in going to find out what they need to know so that they can leave us, we can endure that sense of separation, that sense of abandonment that might arise as a result of that. And then when they come back to us, we're delight that they've come back to us. We can't regulate that abandonment experience. We are often disgruntled when they leave us. We feel a sense of abandonment. And then when they come back, we punish them for having been away that has an inhibitory effect on their willingness to go explore. One of the things that happens, of course, if you don't find out enough about what's meaningful to you, is that the difficulty of life becomes overwhelming, despairing, that you don't want to do it, and that, that can cause you to withdraw more and more from life, uh, from the exchange with other people. And of course, you live in a body that ages, and the older the body gets, actually, the, the less resilient it is, the, the more painful it is often. And the harder it is then to push yourself out to explore. And if you have a habit of restricting it, then the despair of this, this difficult life becomes too much, even in this extraordinarily, extraordinary affluence that uh, many of us live in. And I'm not necessarily talking about the very top of a society, but even the middle of our society is uh, privileged in a way. 
particularly when you compare it to other places in the world. When we went to Myanmar, uh, we often traveled in areas where the uh, average wage for a day was three dollars uh, for women and eight dollars for men. The disparity is common. And and uh, even a, a moderate income in our society is extraordinarily extraordinarily privileged in comparison to that. The thing about this exploration piece, this thing about finding meaning is that it's different for everyone because everybody's conditioning is different. So how do you find the thing that is meaningful to you? And it's a process of experimentation and also a process of resilience. One of the things that you discover if you explore a lot is that most avenues of exploration don't lead very far. I have an Apple story, which I like to tell sometimes. When I first got sober in 1978 in New York, after I had my 90 days, I was trying to figure out what I should be doing. Um, when you come off a, a heavy pattern of addiction and you don't have to do all of that anymore, it leaves you with actually quite a bit of time to do other things. And so I asked my sponsor at the time uh, what it is that I should do or how it is that I should find out what it is that I wanted to do. And he said, well, what kind of apples do you like? I said, I don't really like apples. They're green, they're hard, they're sour. He said, well, Granny Smith apples are green and hard and sour, but not all apples are like that. And really, uh, we had Granny Smith's, and sometimes we had these Harry and David apples, which were these great big red uh, delicious apples, but they weren't very good. They looked good, but when you cut into them, they were kind of mealy. Not very sweet. I tend to have a sweet tooth. So he said, well, what you're going to do is you're going to go to the Korean deli, you're going to buy and Granny Smith, and you're going to buy whatever, one other apple. You're going to eat them both. And then you're going to go back the next day you're going to buy the apple that you liked better and one other apple, and you're going to do that until you go through all of the apples at the Korean deli. I think at this particular Korean deli, they had like 26 varieties of apples and it took me about a month to go through them each day going, buying the apple I liked better and one other apple and going through all of them. And at the end of it, it was gala apples that I liked the best and pink ladies were a second, but it was a sweet sort of crisp, crunchy, apple. But what you learn from exploring and developing resiliency is that almost all of the avenues didn't lead there. 25 of the apples were not the favorite apple. And so when you go out into life and you begin to explore things, really, you don't have to get to the end of the exploration, you have to get to the next thing. What is it 
and this range of experiences that I could have that seems interesting and then doing that and then seeing um, what the, the level of interest is, what the level of meaning is, and then using that as a, as a stepping off point for the next direction until you really find your way through this stuff, and land in a place that has meaning. And because you understand the, the nature of exploration where most things don't pan out, when you do find something that has meaning, it becomes really valuable. And then you create these, the sense of meaning, the sense of value and moving from experience to experience. And then if you gather around yourself a group of people that also can explore, you can develop understandings of how to do it and directions to go in from that intimate exchange of experiences between you. They delight in the things that you discover. You delight in the things that they discover. You delight in the experience of exchanging the ideas. If you get into a rough patch, that uh, support encourages you to move through it. That's also part of the process of resilience. That support that keeps you going when you might consider stopping. So then how do we use our meditation practice to really uh, prepare this? We at uh, Metagroup use a three-pillar approach. One is the reparenting or the remapping of the perceptual database through the Ideal Parent Figure Protocol, which was developed by Dan Brown and David Elliott and his group. their group out in uh, Newton, Mass. The second piece is mentalizing training and emotional regulation training. We use a, a metavipassana approach or a loving kindness, heart practices, insight practice uh, for that. And then the third is the psychoeducation, which is basically what this conversation is, this dialogue around how do we understand how collaboration works in relationships, how intimate relationships work. The ideal parent figure protocol is based on visualization. So it's a comes from the Tibetan Mahamudra practice, deity practice, visualizing something. One of the things about the way that we make conceptual reality is it comes from uh, either our actual experience of things in the past that are relatable to the experience of the present moment, or if we're in a unique situation, the imagination filling that in. So that we can use the imagination to create these uh, pristine, secure models of, of relationships and then use the imaginary piece as a way of scaffolding our responses. So we have the capacity to sense, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind. We have the object that can be sensed by any of those sense gates. When they have contact, consciousness of that sensing experience arises. This is still unconscious, 
So the self-experience isn't aware of this yet. Undifferentiated, unfixated, unattached. It's evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether you get to it? Is there time for a pleasant experience? And then it's compared to the perceptual database. If there's an entry in the database, then that whole string of meaning, so memory and human beings are these strings and patterns that are close to each other are associated with one string of memory. All of that meaning is then associated with the experience of the present moment and it unfolds into conceptual reality, this sense of solidness that we have. And that becomes our map of what's actually happening out there. So uh, this is very Eastern. We take in the data, we create a map of what that means, and then we project it outward. And we operate in this projection of our interpretation of what's happening, very different than what Aristotle imagined. Uh, his view was that we take in what's out there and we create an internal working model of that and operate from that place. But we have, but in his view, we take in what's out there and we create an accurate model. It's not distorted. About 300 years later or so, Epicurus added to that, that if you were in a strong emotional state, it could distort the experience that you're having, but that it's still largely accurate. This is very different than the Buddhist concept of taking the data in, creating a meaning associated with that, sensing experience based on previously experienced events and the meaning associated with it, creating a working model internally and projecting it outward, and then operating in that projection rather than in a working model of what's actually out there. So in the visualization of ideal uh, parenting encounters, secure parenting encounters, we begin to layer into that perceptual database these pristine entries. Now you might think that these imaginations are not actually going to affect the way that we create experience or change the way that we create experience. But the body-mind is uh, economical and always looking for the best way to represent things that is efficient and actually gets us more what we want out of being alive. And so it's very happy to use these pure imagination entries rather than um, say, uh, a less uh, useful actual experience that we've had. And admittedly, in the beginning, this process is kind of rickety. We, we have these imagination, uh, these imaginary events that we then use to create a conceptual reality, and it's subject to, to easy collapse. But if we do create in the present moment uh, an experience of reality that's based on something purely imaginative, and we react from that place in the present moment, we are creating then actual experiences which are then remembered in association. And so that rickety scaffolding of imagination uh, 
becomes a series of actual events that come from this place of uh, security, this place of safety. And over time, the, the resilience, the strength of those uh, experiences builds up in the perceptual database. And then all of a sudden, we're operating from these actual memories of secure outcomes rather than the scaffolding of the imagination. So it's always this process of the capacity to sense, encountering the object that can be sensed, consciousness of the sensing experience arising, its evaluation for, uh, for urgency, then the creation of conceptual reality based on the association from the perceptual database or imagination, and then the creation of uh, con this conceptual reality which includes in it the intention for the action that we're going to take, the action that we take, and then the outcome. And those are remembered in that uh, database and create this collection of our experiences, which we use to understand reality and which we use to uh, make meaning. we stack that database with the ideal parent figure work. In order to learn to mentalize, we use the metta vipassana practice. So the mentalizing is tracking. Uh, there's four dimensions of mentalizing uh, that's based on the Peter Fonagy, Anthony Bateman model spontaneity versus monitoring, self versus other, internal versus external, and cognitive versus effective. So we use a series of investigations around spontaneity and monitoring, which is just basically Vipassana meditation, not interfering with what's happening and at the same time tracking what's happening. Self and world, self and other come together by the internal focus and external focus of the see here field technique developed by Shinzen Young. Focus in when you hold the whole space together, internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking, and emotion in the body creates the experience of self. And when you hold the whole space of focus out, external sight space, external sound space, and the physical quality of the body that creates the perception of the world. Using the same see here, feel, focus in, focus out strategy, we can emphasize internal versus external. Noting the sense gates individually, external sight space, external sound space, and the felt sense of the body, and external expression internal auditory thinking, internal visual thinking, and emotion in the body, the internal sense. And then what's important, of course, is to track whether the stimulus is coming from an external source or an internal source. And then also the expression, what is the internal experience of it and how do we choose to express it?
the external expression of someone else and how do we interpret the, it as a representation of their internal experience. And then cognitive versus effective, internal visual thinking, internal auditory thinking is the cognitive experience and motion in the body is the uh, <clears throat> effective experience. In conjunction with this kind of narrative that we have now, uh, we understand the nature of all of this coming together. We develop the skills, and then that creates the capacity for us to move into a place of secure functioning, where we can track the interaction between ourselves and other people fast enough that we can respond skillfully over and over again. See the way that we create a sense of meaning associated with what's happening in the present moment. Move it more and more into an area of safety, of security, and then this authentic expression, the skill of authentic expression. To learn to be inauthentic in childhood is a terribly painful process, which we, we, we learn only because it's required of us. If there were another option, we wouldn't. We learn it. And what happens to us in abandoning the inauthentic approach for the authentic approach, of course, is that the inauthentic expressions are much more developed, much more skillful, and the authentic expression is not as well developed, kind of klutzy. And then also, we have an expectation of response. When we grow up in households where authentic expression is not acceptable, we associate penalties to the expression of our authentic self, a sense of sadness, maybe, for being rejected or abandoned, a sense of fearfulness from some kind of punishment that might arise. So we have the experience of the present moment and how we could express that if we think that that authentic expression will uh, produce a negative result, there's a spike of abandonment here. If we express ourselves authentically, we'll be abandoned, we experience that. And then the inauthentic thing arises in the mind that we could do instead, and if we express that, it relieves immediately the uh, abandonment here. And the delusion that we can get into is that this inauthentic expression is actually preserving the relationship, serving the usefulness of the relationship. But a little while later, we are angry because we haven't been we haven't been able to express ourselves authentically. Often we're not able to ask for what we need authentically, and so we have a sense of being deprived. And we blame the other person for doing that to us, even though we're the ones who are inauthentic. And if you can push into the authentic expression, it immediately intensifies the abandonment terror. And then if you can hold that experience of the abandonment terror, it dissolves and then you're sideswiped by a wave of terrible sadness when you realize that after leaving the early experience of your household and and becoming your own adult, that you could have also abandoned the inauthentic expressions and, 
and found a more satisfying way of being. But if you can ride that out, you'll come into a place of authenticity without the abandonment here, without the terrible sadness. Totally worth doing. So I thought that we might do a little ideal parent figure tonight so that you can have a sense of what that piece is like. Cindy? I have one question about the um, description you gave and what you've been guiding us through for the mentalizing mm -hmm. meditation. Um, for the, because I've been practicing it every morning, I find it very, it makes, it's hard. It makes my mind very busy trying to do this. Is this in or is this out or is this, you know, all that. And when I get to, um, uh, here, what is it? Um, here in versus, no. What's the one when there's pain on the inside of the body is out, but emotion on the inside is in? Which one yeah. is that? Which you got one it right. That? Yeah, but which one is it on the list? Is it cognitive effective or? Um, so pain in the body? Yeah, um, so I feel pain in the body and I'm trying to discern well, my throat's constricted. Is this sadness? Is this anger? Or is it just pain? Or my gut is constricted. Is this an emotional response? Or is this physical or both? That sort of thing. So in terms of the see, here, feel, focus in, focus out strategy, the physical yeah. pain would be feel out and the emotional experience would be feel in? Right, but if they're the same place, I can do both of them. Um, yeah, then then it's a matter of developing clarity. I'm having a hard time with that. Yeah. 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 Which one is it? It you know you don't it, don't fret too much about it. You can get it wrong. That's totally fine, and it can as the the resolution or the clarity of it becomes greater. You'll, you'll maybe see it more clearly? Well, yeah, okay. I, I usually just do the throat and the gut are two main ones, and they'll be tight. And so I'll feel like that's an emotional restriction, but I'll also just first say, um, it's, it's hard because I always have to remember what it is, what I'm doing. Feel out, right? For the is pain. the physical quality, yeah. And feel in if I can if I can relate it to an emotion. Right. Okay. And then the here in that one's hard too, but I catch myself and say, Am I am I imagining this in a visual or am I seeing it in talk words? And, and then I try and differentiate. So I'm still trying to work on that one. And the other one is for C out. Mm -hmm. If I have my eyes closed, somebody taught me that you can use just the blank, um, dark 
or the inner spots on your eyes when they're closed as see out. Is that okay? Usually as with the eyes closed, there isn't see out. Um, sometimes if you're sitting in a place that's bright, there, there could be a red color of the light passing through the eyelids, which would be see out. Oh, so it's, you can't just do the black of the eyelids closed. Um, no, I wouldn't. You um, wouldn't. Okay. And um, the last a, one I, what? You could, uh, in a highly concentrated state with the eyes open, have both the experience of uh, see out and see in at the same time. Sometimes the see in experience expands outward and fills the same space as the see out experience. And so then you would be able to differentiate the two um, if both spaces were available at the same time. I haven't done eyes opened, so I don't know about that. And the last one is sometimes in the middle of all this, I'll just, there'll be nothing coming up. So I just call it rest. Okay. I think that came from you. Yeah. Sort of like, okay. It almost like gives me a break. Like, I don't know what's going on. So let's just, it's kind of calm. It's like nothing going on. It's like a break. <laughs> all right. Rest is okay. good. All right. Yeah. I think that's the main thing because I want to keep practicing that. So. Okay, good. So let's just do the, the simple ideal parent figure uh, protocol, since that's one of the things that's so helpful in terms of repairing attachment. So go ahead and settle into the body, closing the eyes, scanning through the body, looking for any tension you might be holding, seeing if you can release it. Now bring your attention to the breath. See if you can fall into the natural rhythm of the rising and falling of the breath. Opening your eyes on the in-breath, closing your eyes on the out-breath. Now begin to extend the out-breath, see if you can make each out-breath a little bit longer than the one before it, deeply relaxing the body-mind, continuing to open the eyes on the in-breath, close the eyes on the out-breath.
At a certain point, it'll feel natural just to let the eyes stay closed when that happens. Just let them stay closed, turning your attention inward, continuing to elongate the out-breath. See if you can take the body-mind into deeper and deeper states of relaxation with each out-breath. Now let the breath return to normal. See if you can imagine yourself being lifted up and floating on a big, warm, fluffy cloud, totally weightless, completely relaxed. Now imagine this cloud is transporting you to an especially safe place. When you arrive in this especially safe place, really take it in. Now imagine that you're a young child. Now what I'd like you to do is see if you can imagine an ideal mother figure for you as a young child. Some people can have difficulty doing this, so that if imagining an ideal mother figure seems impossible, you can imagine an ideal version of yourself. I'll give instructions for an ideal mother figure, but if that's impossible for you, just imagine uh, and interpret the instructions for an ideal version of yourself. So see if you could imagine an ideal mother figure, not based on your family of origin, not based on your actual mother, not a correction for your actual mother, 
not based on anyone you've known, an entirely imaginary ideal mother figure, perfectly suited to your nature in every way. See if you can imagine her in some detail. And then really take it in. Notice how she is with you, how she's very sensibly attuned to you, how she picks up on the subtlest changes in your moods, in your mind states, how she consistently responds to you in exactly the right way, in exactly the way that you've always needed someone to. Notice how she's able to express physical affection for you in just the right way. If you need her close, she's immediately available to you and will provide all of the physical affection that you need. But if you need space, she gives you all the space you need. She never hovers or controls or intrudes in any way. Now let that scene fade, continuing to imagine that you're a young child. This time what I'd like you to do is see if you can imagine an ideal father figure for you as a young child. If you have trouble imagining a father figure, if it's impossible, you can use uh, an ideal version of yourself in place of the father figure. I'll give the instructions for the father figure, but if that's impossible for you. Use an ideal version of yourself and follow along interpreting those instructions. 
Imagine that you're a young child. Now imagine an ideal father figure perfectly suited to you as a young child, not based on your family of origin, not based on your actual father, not a correction for your actual father, not based on anyone you've known, an entirely imaginary ideal father figure perfectly suited to your nature in every way. See if you can imagine him in some detail, but then really take that in. Notice how the ideal father figure is with you, how he's very sensitively attuned to you, how he picks up on the subtlest changes in your moods and in your mind states, and how he consistently responds to you in exactly the right way, in exactly the way that you've always needed someone to. Notice how he's able to express physical affection for you in just the right way. If you need him close, he's immediately available to you and will provide all of the physical affection that you need. But if you need space, he gives you all the space you need. He never hovers or controls or intrudes in any way. Now let that scene fade. Continuing to imagine that you're a young child, this time what I'd like you to do is see if you could imagine an ideal environment for you as a young child. This could be based on the safe place, could be based on the place you did grow up in, a variation of that, someplace entirely imaginary. But see if you could imagine yourself as a young child and an ideal place for you to grow and to thrive. See if you can imagine it in some detail and really take it in.
Now, what I'd like you to do is imagine that you're a young child, you're in this ideal environment, and your ideal parent figures are there with you, supporting and encouraging you as you play, as you explore in the environment. Notice how the ideal parent figures are with each other. They're very easily in the way that they collaborate in taking care of each other. There's an easy physical affection between them. But also notice that no matter how involved they are with each other, they never get so caught up in themselves that they lose track of you. You need their attention, it's immediately available to you. You can have all of the attention that you need. When they look at them, you can see that for each of them, you are the center of everything. When they look at you, you can see that for each of them, you're the most important person. When they look at you, you can see how much each of them loves you. And you can take that in. You can be at the center. You can be important. You can be loved. Notice how protective the ideal parent figures are of you as you play, as you explore in the environment. And because they're so protective of you, you feel a sense of safety, a sense of security.
Notice how easy it is to attune to your ideal parent figures. If you need their attention, it's immediately available and you can have all of the attention that you need. Because you feel so safe, so secure with them, it's easy to express yourself authentically. Because you express yourself authentically, you feel seen by them, you feel known by them, you feel accepted by them. Notice how easy it is for the ideal parent figures to emotionally regulate you, which leads you to feel completely free to play, to explore in any way that you need to, because you know that if something happens and you get emotionally distressed, you can come back to them and they'll know just what to do. And they know just what to do because you feel so safe with them. You're free to express yourself authentically. Notice how the ideal parent figures light up with a sense of delight in being with you. It's not performative in any way. You don't have to do anything to earn it. They're responding to your beingness. You don't have to take care of them. You don't have to idealize them. When they see you, they light up with a sense of delight in reaction to your beingness, just the way that you are. You can take that in. You can be delighted in. Now what I'd like you to do is to continue to imagine that you're a young child, you're in this ideal environment with the ideal parent figures 
supporting and encouraging you as you play, as you explore. See if you can imagine a totally new exploration where you're pursuing things in a totally ideal way and you're able to get out of it everything that you want to get out of it.
Now let the scene fade. Finding your way out of there, I'll count from five to one. When I reach one, you'll be fully present, fully awake. Five, four, three, two, one. Fully awake, settle in the experience. Any comments or questions about that? Cindy? Uh, yeah, I just keep uh, hitting an obstacle with this recently, but I can imagine the mother, I can imagine the father in the ideal way, and I can watch them, but it's like watching a movie where that's not me, and so there's this great sadness as if I'm envious that that's there, but I'm not feeling it. But you don't have it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would say that that's an intrusion of the bio parents, that you're identifying with the childhood that you actually had and not with the imagined childhood. And so- How, how do I get out of that? Yeah. Well, the idea then is to drop it and reimagine it so that they're your parents. And each time you notice that intrusion coming in, you just drop it and come back and try and reimagine it as yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how to get to that point because it keeps going back to default. Right. Yeah, each time it does. Yeah. Don't have to think about it or consider it, just drop it and reimagine it as yours as many times as you need to until the mind shifts. Okay, because it's so patterned, as you can tell. That, yeah, um, it's you have to like, push against the pattern. Right. And then how do you drop a new image? Well, I guess there's no formula. You just have to keep trying, right? Until you get one that clicks, because it's sort of like I kept repeating some of it just like okay well that's the image i'll just stick with that and do that and oh yeah the dad's really connecting with me and all that but i'm not feeling it um yeah just drop it and reimagine it until you do that's a lot of work <laughs> a lot of conditioning yep got a lot of coming down the current yeah good um it, does anybody else have a question because i have one other one but go ahead yeah i'm curious about your opinion on the um ketamine the low dose ketamine and the low dose psilocybin that's been going on recently um you know i haven't done it but the the idea that it changes the default neural network and it has this capacity to increase the neuroplasticity and all that. So I'm just curious if you know anything about it or if you've had experience with it. The low dose one, not the tripping. <laughs> I'm not interested in tripping. Um, I think what it does is it tends to make the sense of self and world less solid so that uh -huh. it weakens the identification with conceptual reality, which then opens up the possibility that you can begin to understand that actually you're creating these realities. And if you create an unfortunate reality, that it, that it may not be an actual representation of what's there. 
that then you can recreate the sense of reality. It does also uh, put that uh, put into a, a kind of wonder the nature of this experience, which can be useful. I do think you can get there through meditation too, without without it, but uh, it can be useful in breaking up the the solidness of everything, make it more flowy and. Right, so you could use it with meditation. You wouldn't drop the meditation, but you'd use right. it with and see. Yeah, because it. I guess it takes a while to build up. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about the trip trippy ones? I think that um, that some people use the the high dose ketamine for for chronic pain, and then it can be helpful there. Um, and trauma trauma sometimes they do that uh and uh the psilocybin and uh, mdma or the ufo all of those different things really are headed in the same direction which is they relieve you from the belief that uh the world is the way that it is and it's solid and hostile and can open you up to this wonder of of the experience of being alive but then you do have to begin to develop the capacity to do that independent of the substance, or it just becomes another substance that you're dependent on for having those experiences. Right, it just opens up the door. Yeah, um, and I know that they're not supposed to be addictive, but I seem to know people who can manage that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it can be misused. Uh -huh. like anything like anything that gives you a high yeah but yeah there's a lot of therapy going on with it and it seems like as long as you keep up your meditation practice so that you can be self-reliant on that and does it imitate like the jhana states or anything um i don't know i my sense of it is that it shatters the the solidness so that if you've never had the experience of the self is ephemeral or the world is something that you've made up that it offers you that a glimpse into that so that you can see that there's an alternative to that sort of rigid confining uh, uh identification with self so it would break up conditioning uh if you can integrate it in a way that you don't just snap right back to the the sense of confinement and solidness. Right. When you do that through meditation, of course, you develop confidence in a skill set that you've developed, and that you can do that at any time that you want to, uh, without the use of anything. That, yeah, that, that's the ideal. Yeah. That to me is preferable. It is preferable. I agree. So, okay. Thank you for your thoughts on that. All right. So thanks everybody for coming. Thanks for your practice. Um, I offer the teaching uh, freely, um, but I do hope that you'll uh, practice dana, which is the Pali word for generosity. So making a donation to Metagroup that helps support me and also the work that we're doing. Um, so there's a link on the website that you can do that. We have some stuff coming up. We have a level one starting on Saturday. So if you haven't done our Meditation and Attachment Level 1. Take a look at that. 
We have a level two series starting in April. What else is coming up? We have a meditation and addiction class coming up in May. We're going to do an EU version of level one. So uh, from two to 6.15 Central European time. We have a, ret a retreat in Utrecht in June. So that takes us through the first half of the year. Anyway, it's all on the website. Take a look at it. You can register there. Uh, really appreciate your practice and we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye now.